Good morning, my name is Jacob Parnell and I'm one of the ministers here. Occasionally I preach. I've been on a sabbatical for the last several weeks and it's good to be back uh, preaching again. I came back and I said, let's, uh, let's do a series from Ezra Nehemiah called Rebuilding. This is a story that kind of takes place after the time of the exile, before the time of Christ. And we'll, we'll talk, get into that a little bit more, but I thought it'd be a good little short three-week series and we're going to focus in on Three specific characters that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. So that's where we're going to be for the next three weeks. And then, uh, unless I make some major change, we're going to spend a lot of our time this fall in the book of Ephesians. So does that make anybody excited? Ephesians! Yeah! I'm really excited about that, but you'll hear more about that as we go. Um, One of the things that we did while we were away on sabbatical was do some travel to go and see relatives. It was a great opportunity to leave the state, take all of our kids up north, and visit with family. And while we were on the Oregon coast, Lisa's dad organized the Merritt Family Reunion. Now this was a big thing. This was a big, big undertaking. They had all of his three brothers, all of their 11 kids, right? 11? 9? And then like multiple of that. Grandkids, it was like 40, 45 people all went to the Oregon coast, and we were all in these beach houses that were near each other, and we had a family reunion, and it was this big thing. Lisa told me that when she was a kid, they used to do this, when she was Molly and Eleanor's age. The kids would run around together, their whole family would gather someplace, you'd travel, and you'd just spend the week being together as a family. And so they tried to recapture that. It had been a few years since the family had gathered together, and they said, let's, let's make this happen. Let's commit to each other, let's be family. And we did it. We pulled it off. We reuned uh, on the Oregon coast. And in some ways it was really good, but in other ways it was not really quite what we were expecting. It was not, according to Lisa, I wasn't there, but it was not like the old days. She pointed out that, you know, it's it's different when you have the kids versus when you are the kids. Because a kid at a family reunion just runs around and eats cookies all day long and is unsupervised and it's fantastic. And Lisa had these great memories of the family just loving each other, the cousins playing together, becoming best friends. That didn't really happen quite as easily this time around. Uh, this time, you know, we, we brought the kids and we were responsible for the kids. And so that, that changes things a little bit. Um, and afterwards we said, it wasn't quite what we thought, but it's still a good thing that we did this. We were kind of evaluating it on the drive back and saying, this is good. We want to make it better. We want to continue to commit to each other that we should do these kinds of reunions. Some families don't do that. The kids spread out across the country. They're all in different places, and they say, yeah, we could make the commitment to doing that, but eh, it might not be worth it. We've got to be honest. There's a risk involved of going back. There's a cost. There's, a, there's an expense. Her dad's brothers flew in from different parts of the country. They flew their grandkids in. That's not cheap. That's something that you have to take into consideration. There's also the risk that it's not going to be fun, that it's just going to be a big hassle and a big headache, and it won't quite live up to our expectations that we have. But I really respect the fact that Lisa's family said, this is something that we need to do. We need to get back, reconnect, reestablish those connections, and not lose the relationships that we had with each other. The reason I'm starting with this story is because Ezra and Nehemiah There are two different books in the Old Testament, but uh, for the Hebrew people, they were one. It's just one long story. That's why I'm going to refer to it as Ezra and Nehemiah, so you hear me say that. 
This is a chapter in Israel's history that's not just about rebuilding a building, which they do rebuild, the temple. It's rebuilding the walls and the rituals, but it's not just about that. It's a people reestablishing their relationship with God. It's a family that comes together and says, it is worth the time, the effort, the cost, and the risk to make this thing happen. So that's where we're going to be hanging out for the next few weeks. One of the most earth-shattering and world-changing events that happened in the life of God's people was when Babylon destroyed the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. This was the unthinkable. This was something that nobody had ever considered would happen. This was impossible. I mean, after all, who could possibly vandalize or threaten God's house? This is the place where God is found. No one's going to stand up to that. Who could possibly conquer God's house? Well, they found out. It was the Babylonians. They came in, and they trashed the place. And then they took a lot of the Jews off into exile. They said, you are our people now, and what do you do if you're a Jewish person? So much of their, their identity and their hope was wrapped up in this place, this central location where God could be accessed. And now it's not there. So what do you do? Exile, a lot of that was them figuring this out. Uh, they were rebuilding even before they were freed. And they spent a few generations kind of getting used to life without their temple. And then this opportunity happened. Let's read a little bit from this story. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And this is what he said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Oh, that's good news. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. That's great news. We can go back. We can have our temple again. They're even going to fund this thing and say, hey, have your temple. Be this people who worships God once again. The Persians were a lot more lenient to the Jewish traditions than the Babylonians were. The Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539, and so now there's this new leadership. Babylonians were like, you can't have Jerusalem. The Persians said, you can. It's fine. It's kind of good strategy if you're going to conquer a people and then keep them in line. You want to give them a few things that they like and let them have their way of life back while still establishing your dominance and saying, we're still in charge, but you can have your temple back. The Jews were like, great, we, we want to have the temple back. So that's what they do. Uh, one of the leaders during this first wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem was a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. It's a fun name to say. Everybody turn to the person next to you and say, what's your name? Okay? And if you said the appropriate question, which was, what's your name? Now you can go ahead and respond to that person. Tell them what your name is. So many of you are saying Zerubbabel, which is not what I told you to do. <laughs> so let's try this again. Turn to somebody next to you and say, what's your name? Great. Now tell that person who asked you what your name is. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you, could you tell just by that person saying what their name is, 
where they're from. Could you say, I know where you grew up. I know where you moved from. I can tell just by your name where you are from. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes a person's name can be very revealing about where they're from or what their background is. Lisa and I had a friend in college named Mary Marjorie, and she was a sweetheart. But do not call her Mary because her name was not Mary. Her name was Mary Marjorie. It's that, that southern thing of putting the two names together and now you have one name that always needs to be said. That was Mary Marjorie. Um, and guess where Mary Marjorie was from? Somewhere in the south. Yeah, you're right. South Carolina, with emphasis on the south part of things, where that's, that's a lot more common than it is on the west coast or a lot of other places. Two names for Mary Marjorie, revealing about where she's from. Zerubbabel is a name that means rooted in Babylon. So where do you think he's from? <laughs> he grew up in Babylon. He's this Jewish man, but he is rooted in Babylon. He has a name that is the Old Testament equivalent of a Don't Mess With Texas t-shirt. You know where this guy is from. And yet, here's the interesting thing about Zerubbabel, Mr. Rooted in Babylon. We know he's from Babylon, but we also know that he was a man of great faith because given the opportunity to leave Babylon, the place where he was rooted, the only place that he'd ever known, in order to participate in an arduous building project in an unknown place, guess what he did? He went. He said, okay, let's not be from Babylon anymore. Let's go. And as I think about Zerubbabel, I wonder what it was that inspired him. What was it that made him say, yes, I will leave my home and my people and my way of life, and I'm going to go to this building that needs a lot of work, and it's in ruins, and it may not actually happen. What was it that inspired him? I wonder if there were older Jewish men and women that he grew up with that had seen the temple and its glory with their own eyes and had said, oh, Zerubbabel, it's an awesome place. It was a, a wonderful place to be. It's a place where worship rang out, where sacrifices were made. It was the city on a hill where pilgrims would travel miles just to come and worship. It was a place where the presence of God was felt. I wonder if, as they described the glory of the temple to him, I wonder if it was more about the fact that God was there and God was the reason behind this building rather than fond memories of the building itself. Like I hope they weren't saying, oh, man, it had these great doorways and this, the sidewalk leading up to it was so comfortable on your feet. That would be kind of disappointing if that's what the temple was remembered for. In the same way, I don't want my daughters to look back on their memories at Tri-Valley and say, oh, it was a great church. We had the most comfortable red chairs. I love coming and sitting in them every single week. And, oh, man, the air conditioner was always reliable, and it always made you comfortable. I don't want that to be their memories of coming to this building. I hope that they remember the encounters that they have here with God's Spirit. I hope I hear them say, that's the place where my heart was softened. That's the place where I experienced love and healing that's the place where I grew in my faith and my understanding of Jesus Christ. So, back to Zerubbabel. He heard about this temple and this opportunity to go back and rebuild, and he said, I am going. And so we learn from, about Zerubbabel that he had faith to go. There's going to be three of these in case you're thinking ahead and anticipating where this is going. And soon after he gets there, we find out that Zerubbabel 
also was a guy who had faith to wait. Let me show you what I mean. You can flip over to Ezra chapter 3. We're going to cover about six chapters in Ezra this morning in the story of Zerubbabel. But this is what happened when they get there. They gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and they gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre. Uh, This is north of Jerusalem, up on the coast. So that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by King Cyrus of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and all of them, they began the work. A few chapters before, a few verses before, it talks about the very first thing they did when they got there was they built an altar and they made sacrifices to the Lord. Good. That's what you should do. First things first, take care of all that. But look at verse 8. I'm going to highlight a little section for you here. Notice that the building of the temple doesn't start until when? 26 months after they arrive in Jerusalem. That's probably not what they were expecting. Maybe that was standard back then. But you arrive and you're going to go and rebuild this temple of the Lord, but the first thing you got to do is wait for the wood to show up. they got to send away for building materials, and they wait and they plan. But this is over two years. That would be really frustrating for me. I get mad if a website takes more than a second and a half to load, and I'm like, oh, I need a new computer. This is unreasonable. And you're that way, too. That's why you're laughing. But they had to wait a long time to do the one thing that they went there to do, and that takes a lot of patience. That takes a lot of faith. Maybe you've been in a similar situation like that in your life where you're like, I know this is what I'm going to do. I know this is what God wants from me, so when is this going to start? When is this going to happen, Lord? And the answer that you seem to be getting from God is, "Hmm, not yet, maybe in a little bit, or maybe just wait and find out. That's really, really frustrating. And you wait a little bit, and then you go, okay, how about now? God's like, hmm. It's hard. I met a couple uh, named Lauren and Tom. This is a picture of Lauren and Tom. They are this young couple. They love Jesus. They're s- super cool. They're, they have a heart for discipleship and making believers out of non-believers. They want to get to know their neighbors. They want to start a house church. That's one thing they're really passionate about is just starting a church in their home and having people over to study the word, to come to know Jesus Christ. I met them a couple years ago and just was really inspired by their passion for wanting to do this. They live in New Jersey. They live in an apartment building, and it's like four stories tall, and they said, okay, this is going to be our mission field. We are going to reach people for Christ in our building. Ready? And they couldn't find anybody. (laughs) And I said, what? Was it like an empty building? They're like, no, no, no. All the units were full, but it's something about the culture. It's something about this particular group of people. They're close to New York, so there's a lot of commuters that just go into the city, and they don't want to interact with their neighbors. They said it was strange. It was hard to find people to bump into people in the garage or in the hallway. They said it was almost like people would look through their peepholes and wait for the hallway to be empty, and then they would rush out to the elevator or like get down to their car, go do their thing, and then come back and lock themselves inside. Maybe, maybe you have some neighbors that are like that. You want, you want to meet them. You want to learn their name, but they're like, zoop, they're too fast for you. That's a, they said that's what it felt like, and they were really frustrated because they couldn't couldn't make friends. They couldn't bump into people. They started trying to be proactive. They started sliding notes under people's doors, just saying, hey, we're your neighbors. 
we'll pray for you, we're here, we love you, and they got no response. Then Lauren started making baked goods and taking them and leaving them on people's doorsteps. She put like Christmas cookies at Christmas time. Merry Christmas from 4B, we love you. No response. Nobody acknowledged. The cookies disappeared, but they didn't get any acknowledgement from anybody. And so here they are. They've been plugging away at this dream of a house church, an authentic Christian community, and they've been going for about two years now. Two years of waiting, of planning, of wondering, uh, are we doing this right? But I talked with them this summer. I got to visit with them a little bit while I was out of town. And they said they're starting to see these little sprouts of growth. Things are starting to happen. They said a Christian couple moved down the hall from them, and they actually bumped into them, glory be, in the hallway one day, and they said, hey, do you guys want to start a Bible study? They said, absolutely, we do. So now they have this core team. They have this other couple that have the same vision for wanting to reach their apartment building. They invited people over for a pizza party. They did more notes under the doors and flyers, and hey, we're just going to have pizza. Come over and visit with us. And three families came, which is really good. In a ghost town, you get three families. That's exciting. And it was confirmation for them that, yes, people actually do live in this building. It's a start. We can work with that. They also told me a story about how Tom's friend at work, just out of the blue one day, just started asking him about his faith. And Tom said, oh, yeah, I follow Jesus, and I read my Bible, and just basic stuff. And he said, can you teach me how to follow Jesus? That's fantastic when something like that just falls into your lap. So now he's discipling this guy from work. There's this other woman who caught wind of their conversations, and, and Lauren is starting to work with her, and they're starting to see things happen. And it's awesome. These guys are awesome. I hope you get to meet them one day. But they're probably thinking, and maybe we wonder along with them, why didn't this happen from the start? This is two years after the fact. Why didn't God make something happen right away? I don't have the answer for that question. Maybe the soil wasn't ready yet. Maybe Lauren and Tom weren't ready yet. God's timing is a tricky and frustrating thing sometimes. But in the process, it helps us develop trust, and patience. Lauren and Tom are learning this. And I think Zerubbabel learned this as well. But it paid off. Things got going in Jerusalem. They got their building supplies. They started building. They laid the foundation of the temple, and the people responded. This was a good day when this happened. Verse 10 says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So that was good. But not everybody was excited about the rebuilding of the temple. And so we're going to see now that... Zerubbabel demonstrated faith to persevere. I told you there were three. So the delays with the building materials was not the only obstacle that faced Zerubbabel in his experience uh, and his efforts to rebuild the temple. Some neighboring people come along. Scripture tells us that they were enemies of Benjamin and Judah. So they're like, hey, we see that you're rebuilding the temple. Can we get in on this? Can we help you? We want to be a part of this. And Zerubbabel and his people say, no thanks. This is our thing. We were commissioned by Persia to do this. And maybe there's some other reasons. Uh, we, they think that these neighboring people became the, what we know as the Samaritans when we read the New Testament, who are saying, hey, 
part of the reason they built this worship spot on Mount Gerizim was because the returning Jews wouldn't let them be part of this temple. So now there's two temples. And anyway, it became a whole big complicated mess. But the point of the story is that Zerubbabel said, no, we don't want your help. They didn't like that. They got kind of bent out of shape when Zerubbabel said this to them. And they go and they write a letter to the king of Persia. It's a different guy at this point. And he says, the people are building in Jerusalem, and we don't know if they have permission. They're just doing this. And the reason that you should be concerned, O wise king, is because they are a wicked and rebellious people. You do not want them to have power again. And as Zerubbabel opens his mouth to say, no, we're not, he realizes, wait a minute. The last time the temple was operational, what happened? The people were conquered, and they were carried away into exile. And if you read Israelites' people explanation of that, it's because they were wicked, and they were rebellious against God. So it's kind of a slam. They're, they're, they're trying to slander them, but it's kind of an educated slam. It's kind of like, oh yeah, that's right. We kind of, we are this wicked and rebellious people. But what they're trying to do is halt the progress and, you know, thwart the plans, and this goes on for quite a long time. They write these letters, they get the people to say, whoa, 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 hold all the progress on building. We gotta sort this out. We gotta find this original letter from Cyrus and make sure that this thing is all on the up and up. And the Israelite people, Zerubbabel included, found themselves waiting for 10 years. This is me pausing to let 10 years sink in. It's a long time, it's longer than two years in case you haven't done the math. Because of this letter-writing campaign, the temple rebuilding is deemed unauthorized. Let's not do any more building until we sort this out. So things just stop. And then, after 10 years, this happens. And this is my favorite part of the story. Now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, supporting them. This is one of those moments in Scripture where a lot happens in a short amount of verses. Basically, everything's put on hold, but then here comes Haggai and Zechariah, and they start prophesying. They start talking to the builders, and then they go, okay, let's start building again. Is anybody else curious about what they said that got them to start rebuilding while the building was still unauthorized after 10 years of not building? Those got to be powerful words. These got to be prophets that know how to motivate people. The good news for us is that we have some of the words of Zechariah and Haggai in other parts of the Old Testament conveniently labeled Haggai and Zechariah. So we can take a listen to what they said. And we'll do that in just a moment. But here's sort of an overview on these prophets. One commentator describes, uh, they say, he said that Zechariah's preferred method of motivation was the carrot. But Haggai, his preferred method of motivation was, guess what? The stick. And uh, yeah, they kind of have this good cop, bad cop dynamic while they're preaching and encouraging these people. Zechariah is the kind of guy who comes over and says, like, guys, 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 come here, come here, come here. Let's just talk about how good God is. Isn't God awesome? Oh, man, the Lord is so good. He's been so faithful. Can you just imagine what his kingdom is going to be like? 
we do this building project, man, all these great things he's going to do, you can just picture it. Zechariah talks in, in poems and in images, and he's just got this very, seems to me like kind of like a hippie vibe, like, come on, man, God is great. Haggai, on the other hand, his approach is more like this. Hey, how come you're not building God's house? Get off your butts and get back to work. This is, this is my paraphrase. But Haggai says things like, hey, I noticed you remodeled your kitchen. Looks really nice. Over here, the house of God has no walls. What do you guys think about that? How does that strike you? This is what the, the scriptures say from Haggai. The people procrastinate. They say, this isn't the right time to rebuild my temple, the temple of God. Well, how is it that it's the right time for you to live in your fine new homes while the home, God's temple, is in ruins? You feel the stick, don't you? So get to work, Zerubbabel. God is speaking. Get to work, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Get to work, all you people. God is speaking. Yes, get to work, for I'm with you. The God of the angel armies is speaking. Put into action the word I covenanted with you when you left Egypt. I am living and breathing among you right now. Don't be timid. Don't hold back. That's what Haggai sounds like. And I kind of like this. This kind of reminds me of the church. There's different personalities. Somebody, you're going through something, there's the, the Zechariah person who will go, Oh, sweetheart, come here, come here. And they'll just let you talk over coffee for three hours, and they'll hold your hand, and oh, bless your heart. And then sometimes <laughs> something's going wrong, and somebody will shoot you real straight, and they're not going to sugarcoat any of it. Why don't you get back to work? It's your own fault. If I'm honest, I think I need both of those in my life. I don't want all of this, because that would be coddling, and I definitely don't want all of this, because that would be terrifying. But... <laughs> Different approaches, different motivational tools kind of happens in our midst as well. Um, but what ends up happening, Zerubbabel hears this one-two punch of Zechariah, Haggai, and him, the other workers, they get back to work. Even before this whole issue of whether or not they're permitted to do the building is cleared up. They get back to work. So what we see is that Zerubbabel has faith to go, to wait, and also to persevere. And the temple of the Lord is rebuilt. God's people have now gone out of Babylon and back into Jerusalem. And what they do when the temple is done being built is they celebrate the Passover festival, which is a reminder festival of how God's people went out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. Now let's think about ourselves for a minute. We have a stake in this story as well as God's people. We have been freed out of the grip of sin and death, and we have been called into this new life in Christ. How many of you teenagers who were at camp last week, teenagers who were at camp last week, do you remember what 1 Peter 2.9 says? Just give me a nod. I won't make you stand up here and recite it, but this was their theme verse from camp last week. You are a chosen people, a... Okay, royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, uh, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Peter motivating his people, reminding them who they are. You are no longer exiles. 
you are now called to do something new. You are no longer prisoners of sin and death. You have been freed because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You stand at the threshold of the prison door that's been opened wide. And he asks this question, what are you going to do? Are you going to walk through it? Are you going to heed the words of Zechariah and Haggai when they say, get to work. Don't procrastinate. The kingdom that God is building is awesome. So get going. Are we following the faithful example in our lives of Zerubbabel? Who, as you think about it, is kind of this prototype of the faithful example of Jesus? Jesus had faith to go. Jesus had faith to wait. Jesus had faith to persevere. And Jesus is calling us to be faithful in our freedom from exile as well. To rededicate ourselves to the work of building his kingdom, to recreate space in our lives where we can worship and know him, to resist the temptation to assimilate to godless cultural values, and to fight comfort and complacency, and to step out in faith to new tasks in new places. And as we consider Zerubbabel and his faithfulness, are we going to be like that too? Are we going to exhibit all of these characteristics? Faith to go, faith to wait, faith to persevere. The question you might have at this point is, I've been in these situations before. How do I know? How do I know that I'm supposed to go? How do I know that I'm supposed to hang in there and just wait? The time is not right yet. How do I know when it's time to persevere versus giving up and going in a different direction? I think the Christian community answers that question as a whole better than I do. We listen for God's word. We hear from one another. We let people give us the Zechariah comfort and let people shoot us straight. I think that's all part of it. It's usually not an easy answer, but it's, it's the process of discernment that is important to be connected with other believers in order to do. I want to end this morning by praying for us. I'm going to lead us in a prayer for more faith to go, faith to wait, and faith to persevere. And as I'm saying this, this is, this is a story that comes out of Scripture and some blended words that I came up with, but you're hearing this, and this might be hitting you. One of these might stand out to you. You might be like, yeah, I need to go, whatever that looks like. I need to wait. I need to be like Lauren and Tom or Zerubbabel. I need to, it's time to wait. That's the season that I'm in. Maybe I need to, I need to persevere. I need to not give up or not let these obstacles keep me from doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And you know better than I do what that looks like in your life. But what I'm going to do now is kind of guide us through uh, a prayer, asking God to reveal that to us and to continue to be with us and give us the strength that only he can provide. So, if you would, please stand up. And we're going to close with this prayer together. Lord God, Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your faithfulness to your children in Egypt, your children coming out of exile, your children coming out of slavery to sin, your faithfulness in saving us through Jesus Christ. You are a faithful God. And we look to you now for just a portion of that faithfulness that you've had. We want to be faithful to you in our calling to be disciples of Christ and to make disciples of Christ to be a light in the world, to be a better neighbor, to show love to you and to the people around us. And sometimes we feel stuck and sometimes we face obstacles. 
So thank you for this story that inspires us and reminds us that you are with us and that through faithfulness we can overcome and we can persevere. So right now I want to lift up anybody who is feeling a tug on their heart like they need faith to go. They need answers to their questions about whether it's the right time or, or where exactly they need to be or what you're calling them to that they're not currently doing. Uh, and church, I'll ask everybody, just close your eyes. Close your eyes. And if somebody is feeling like that's them, just, just raise your hand. This is, I'm not even looking. I, 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 this is not a survey or a vote. This is just you making a gesture toward God saying, that's me, Lord. I need faith to go. I need you to go with me. I need you to give me courage. You can put your hand down. And Lord, I want to lift up people who might need more faith to wait, to wait on what it is you're doing, people who are frustrated in things not going the way they thought they would, the way that they hoped that they would, especially those who are doing things for your kingdom and trying to be faithful. I pray that you give them clarity of vision and wisdom and patience during this time. And church, if there's anybody who that relates to, I want just to just lift up your hand. Lift it up to God and say, Lord, I, I need faith to wait. Be with me during this time of waiting. Take away my frustration and replace it with a hopefulness, hope uh, that's informed by a reminder of how faithful you are. And you can put your hands down. And Lord, we need faith to persevere. As a church, as individuals, in relationships, in our in our call to be Christians the way that you have defined that. So, Lord, I want to lift up those this morning who need to persevere. Maybe it's after 10 years of silence. Maybe it's after a short period of frustration or obstacles that they don't know how to get around or over. Lord, I pray that you give them strength to break down walls and to keep on going, knowing that anywhere you go is where they need to be. Anything that you are calling them to do is worthwhile. I want to ask those people to just raise your hand. You can raise it up small or big. It's up to you. We still have our eyes closed. This is just between you and the Lord. God, I ask that you see us this morning. That you hear this prayer and that you shower your blessings on us. That you make us new in the new life of Christ that only you can give. And Lord, I want to add on to this prayer. If anybody here needs a, a Joshua son of Jehozadak. They need a buddy. They need a partner. They need, like Lauren and Tom, neighbors from down the hall, to share the same vision and to hold them accountable and to keep them strong in their faith. I pray that they find it this morning. I pray that this prayer and conversations that happen in this room this morning will lead to those partnerships, the way that you sent out the disciples in pairs. You believed in the buddy system, Lord, and sometimes we feel like we're going at it alone. But I don't want anybody in this church to feel like that. I pray that they find each other this morning. pray that you connect us for works of service in your kingdom and that you're glorified by all of this. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.